All right, welcome to the joy thrill ride of Story Story Night, where you hear true stories on a theme recorded live on stage without notes. I'm the slammer that just missed sharing my story. My name's Mark. That's true. On this podcast, gather around our campfire for some storytelling. It's the slam from the fourth show in our action theme season camp held on February the 28th, 2017 at Jump. During the slam, we randomly drew names from a lunchbox and the brave few set up camp on our stage for a five minute story. <sighs> Except me. Can I sum up my story in a short phrase? <laughs> Camping, far afield, Botswana, elephants trampling through the camp, nearly killing me, and the woman of my dreams, Miss Denmark, or former Miss Denmark, who I really wanted to marry and impress. We were left alive. That thin canvas, which I thought was the only thing preventing us from being trampled, actually I didn't know, but elephants are dumb enough to think it's big rocks, so we survived, no problems. We got married, I'm single. <laughs> Must be the elephants. Better luck next time. Jerry Holman. All right. So as you may can tell from my accent, I'm not from around here. I'm from the South. So I found myself in Memphis, Tennessee in the middle of 2009. And lo and behold, my job got outsourced to India. So I start sending out resumes all over the country. And where do I land but here in Boise? And I moved here by myself, just nobody with me. So at first, all I've got are my work associates, right? Luckily, at least one guy and his family take me in and become my family away from family. However, outside of work, really no connections. So I found myself holding on and clinging to this old life, these old connections back in Memphis or my family in Louisiana or wherever I had friends back in, down south. Well, I ended up taking a lot of trips home, a lot of calls home, texts. On one such return trip at the beginning of 2011, I happened to make a connecting flight in Denver. And I'm sitting there, and I look up, and there's this, this woman with a head full of red hair sitting near me. And I strike up a conversation and find out that she lives about half a mile away from me on the other side of Warm Springs, had moved to Boise about two months before me. And, uh, and then we get to share this wonderful experience of seeing a woman completely lose her mind after missing her flight. I mean, completely losing her mind. Like, she came up, was like banging on the closed door, screaming at people, punching the keypad, trying to get into the closed door. The phone behind her on the desk starts ringing. She answers it and starts yelling at the person on the other end. And we're just looking at each other going, what is going on? And of course, she and her significant other were quickly escorted away by airport security. So that, we, that was one of our first stories that we, and experiences we got to share. Well, so fast forward through uh, several months of hanging out with my new friend, Christine. And uh, she introduced me to a lot of the different social things around. Got to go to concerts and whatnot. Well, on towards Labor Day, she mentions, hey, me and these you know, two girlfriends of mine, we, we want to go on this camping trip and we want our friend Brian to go, but Brian's not going to go unless another dude comes. He just doesn't want to hang out with just all girls. 
I'm like, hey, I'm in. You know, let's do it. So she and her friend Karen had to go ahead and, and uh, scout out the camping, trip, the camping site. And so she arranged for me to meet Brian and the other friend, Megan, and pick them up after work. And so we all got to ride together. Well, we get there, make introductions around, I meet Karen, and um, we set up camp. And then the next day, we have this great plan that, okay, our friend Brian, who's this uh, world-renowned fly fisherman, uh, <laughs> is going to catch dinner for us. Well, he, <laughs> he, and, he and Megan are both pretty avid fly fishermen, and they spend probably two hours out in the middle of the middle fork of the Boise River. I mean, looking awesome doing it. I mean, <laughs> Brian looks like he's out of field and stream, got his hat with his lures and vest and waders, and he's waist deep out there, and he's all just looking like poetry in motion, but not catching anything. And here comes Christine with her red hair and her fair skin and her huge gardening hat with a huge brim and white gardening gloves, walks out with just a rod and a reel and quickly catches like three fish, four fish <laughs> in like 10 minutes. So thanks to Christine, we had dinner. Well, that night, um, with nothing but the campfire and starlight uh, lighting us and we're all sitting around eating the wonderful catch that she got. I make my way over to the, the beer cooler to get another beer when Karen, uh, quite shockingly, says, Jerry, I didn't know you were so sensuous. I'm like, what? She's like, you know, since you was up, well, why don't you bring us another beer? <laughs> all right, all right. So there I was on the banks of the middle fork of the Boise River in the middle of nowhere Idaho after having spent a, almost a full year of clinging to this old life, and I had found this whole new wonderful world of friends, thanks to my friend Christine, and I learned a lesson there in the dark uh, amongst these new friends that I'm still having to remind myself of quite a bit these days. Sometimes you have to let go of the old and the familiar so your arms are open and able to embrace this new life and new, new opportunities that present themselves. Thank you. Yes, there is a person here named Tom Samil. All right, so I haven't really prepared this at all or timed it, so if I get cut off mid-story, I apologize, but I want to tell you guys about a couple of questionable decisions that I've made in my life up to this point. And uh, a lot of those questionable decisions that I've made have happened while camping because like I'm sure a lot of people have done. Uh, because a lot of my childhood was spent camping. I was fortunate enough to have a dad that kept us outside doing all sorts of outdoorsy type activities, particularly kayaking, which is what brought me up here to Idaho. I followed my brother who came up here for the rivers and I was shortly behind him but quickly transitioned into uh, one of the greatest things that this state has to offer in terms of outdoors, which is rock climbing, uh, which is a sport where it's very easy to make a questionable decision. <laughs> and I quickly got obsessed with it and decided uh, to go for something fairly ambitious. And if anybody's spent any time up in the Sawtooth Mountains here, there's a good chance that you've seen the Finger of Fate, which is a beautiful 
spire of rock up above Hell Roaring Lake. And I'd seen it on a backpacking trip, and like most people who see it thought, I really want to get to the top of that. <laughs> and I'd been learning how to rock climb, mainly in a gym inside with plastic and <laughs> ropes, but after some training and feeling like I knew what I had to do to get to the top, I was able to convince my brother to join me. Unfortunately, we had very limited time, and uh, well, but on the other side of that, there was a full moon coming up. So we decided we would drive up, hike in, climb it at night, but it was a full moon, so we'd be fine. There'd be plenty of light. <laughs> and come down, hike out, drive home, and it would be fine, it'd be amazing, it would be huge, and we would be awesome. And uh, so the first part of that plan went great. The drive was easy and beautiful, the hike was, the hike was actually pretty hard, but beautiful. And it was when the climbing started that it didn't go super well. Uh, our preparation wasn't good enough to get us starting up the right part of the rock. And so we were climbing, we ended up, unbeknownst to ourselves, climbing the wrong side. And uh, pretty quickly on, we realized that it was much, much, much more difficult than we were anticipating. But we were committed and had to keep going, uh, mainly for our pride. We could have easily rappelled back to the ground and left, but uh, we were both young, aggressive males, and so up was the only direction we could go. And so, uh, miraculously, mainly due to some heroic feats by my brother, we made it several hundred feet up to a plateau without dying <laughs> and, uh, and realized that the, we still had several hundred feet more to go in the dark and that the full moon was actually on the other side of the rock. <laughs> And so we were in the shadow, and it was pitch dark. <laughs> um, so we, at that point, realized that there was an opportunity to get back to the ground uh, and have some sort of success for making it part way, but escape with our lives and, uh, and make it home. So we repelled all through the night. Got back to camp just before it got light out, slept for a couple of hours, hiked out, and uh, he and I haven't been back there together since. <laughs> um, however, a couple of years later, I had learned a lot more about rock climbing, and I'd also met a girl, and we were we met through a couple of cliches that came together where I was an upperclassman in school and she was a freshman and I was a raft guide and she was a client, both at the same time. So it was a match made in heaven, really. And we, uh, she obviously came on a rafting trip, so she liked camping and doing outdoorsy stuff. And I was still on the same path of questionable decisions that I've been on. Uh, that I'm still on, I guess. Uh, and we were early on in our relationship. We were at a point where I really wanted to impress her and she really wanted to impress me. And 
So I said, hey, let's go and try and climb this awesome thing that I tried once before. And she, like I said, wanted to press me, so she said, sure, let's go for it. And it didn't matter that she'd never been alpine climbing. She'd been rock climbing a little bit. Uh, uh, but it also didn't matter that she'd never been backpacking before. <laughs> and, uh, and so we went for it. And we drove up. The drive was beautiful. We hiked in. The hike was beautiful. And, uh, and we started climbing. And the climbing, this time we did it during the day. Uh, I learned that lesson. Uh, <laughs> Uh, and the climbing was amazing. It was really, really, really good. And uh, we got on the right route, I guess is important to mention, or the right side of the rock. And, but it wasn't without uh, incident. If, uh, if any of you have climbed the Finger Fate, you, you know that the top of it, <laughs> it has what's is a very iconic, classic, epic, beautiful last pitch, where you get to within 50 feet of the top, uh-oh. <laughs> you knew that. And you, you actually climb through the rock underneath it, and then you turn around and you climb up the other side. But you're supposed to turn around, go left, and climb up the other side, which I didn't know. I turned, went, uh, went in, turned right, and went up that side, which uh, was much more difficult than I would have expected. I thought I was going to fall to my death a couple times. But I made it up, she made it up behind me, and I have this beautiful picture of her curled up in a ball on the summit. And, uh, so, and then after that, it went smooth. We went, went, made it back down, we hiked out, and we've now been married for six months. Susan Early. I grew up in New York City, and I went to camp for the first time when I was seven years old. And you go to camp in New York City because in the summer, it's like being inside a compost bin every time you walk outside. Your eyeballs sweat, it's disgusting. My parents had just split up. My mom's new boyfriend, Bob Barker, which I didn't realize what his name really was until I was saying the story. His daughter, Ellen, had gone to a camp for years and my mom thought it would be a good idea if my older sister and I, Janet, went to camp with Ellen. It seemed like a good idea at the time. For the record, everyone agrees seven way too young. You can't go to sleepaway camp for four weeks at seven. So I get to camp. I'm a New York City kid. Like The camp was a little crazy. but. Um, and they thought, oh, my sister will be there, my older sister. She'll be my comfort, my joy. She'll take care of me. But, so I saw my sister twice. The first time I saw her when it was my job at camp to deliver food to her table. And she wanted no part of recognizing me or acknowledging me in any way, so that didn't go over well. And then I got super, super homesick. So I burst out crying, and the counselor called her over the loudspeaker. Janet Early, please come to the cafeteria. I knew that would not end well right from there. She came up, she saw me. The counselor said, your sister's really lonely, could you comfort her? She looked at me and she's like, get over it. <laughs> so the counselor took care of me from that day on. I got extra ice cream. But um, the following year, my mom and Bob had broken up. 
so we were not going back to university settlement camp. And my parents found another camp, the Greenwich House camp, the cheapest camp ever. <laughs> it was $200 per kid for four weeks. <laughs> I asked my mom recently because I really wanted to know. And it was bare bones to the barest bones. Arts and crafts, all popsicle sticks. <laughs> Lanyards, only once a week, because they didn't have enough to go around. Um, and now just imagine 400 New York City kids in the woods in the summer with pretty minimal college-age supervision. <laughs> so the first year we went was OK, not so great. My sister and I, she's two years older, we were in the same cabin, only she was in the upper side and I was in the lower side. So that meant the uppers bossed around the lowers. So you could imagine that year was hell. Um, my sister had lots of things for me to do. Cleaning her clothes, you know, packing, cleaning her clothes, putting away her laundry, all things I really wanted to do at camp. But in the odd years, we were in separate cabins and I loved that because I was an upper in my cabin and she was nowhere around, so it was great. And so that first year, we were in the same cabin. The second year, we were in separate. So I figured it out like every other year wasn't going to be so good, but it would be better for the odd years when we were not together. Our third year at camp, we were in the same cabin, and the dryer caught on fire, and all of our clothes were burned. <laughs> and of course, my sister and I were in the same cabin, so my mom gets a phone call, this was before priority mail, that she has to send us all new clothes because our clothes are all burned. So she's furious. She's like, what kind of camp is this? This is the worst thing ever. And uh, we were like, didn't really matter that our clothes were burned. Like at camp, you did not, you barely changed your clothes. Like it just it was not a cleanly experience. When they cleaned your laundry, they dump it in the middle of the floor and it was like Lord of the Flies to get your clothes. And sometimes you got yours, but you didn't care. You got clean clothes. You just took what you could get. So my mom and my mom had remarried and she went on this tour with my stepdad in Europe the next summer. My sister and I were in the same cabin. And uh, I was worried about my mom. She was going to Europe. She was traveling with my stepdad. It seemed all foreign to me, like parents having fun. That was not going to end well for them. <laughs> and here we were at camp, and there was not one letter from my mother. There's not one letter. I'm like, what is going on? So we're getting ready. We're on the bus on the way home. I got on first, I'm kind of sitting towards the front. My sister is super cool. She's got her fair faucet flip hairdo. She walks by, she looks at me, she goes, drops a pile of letters this big in my lap from my mom, typed very carefully because she took her typewriter to Europe so she could write neatly with incredible tales of their trip addressed to both of us. But I was not worthy because I was second. So Janet got every single letter that summer, and I read them on the bus on the way home. Like, this was so mean. How come she held them from me? And then the next year, my mom busted out the carbon paper, and every letter was typed. I got the carbon copy, my sister the original, but it didn't matter, I got my own mail. Thank you. Jeff Walker, you're the next contestant. Uh, let's see, my story starts in 1977. I was seven years old, I had a KTEL album on it, had Little River Band, uh, Taste of Honey, 
Boogie Oogie Till You Can, Boogie No More, and Baker Street. So I was pretty proud of that album. And I tape, put it on a tape because we were going camping that summer. And so I thought, okay, we're going to have a little tape recorder in the front seat of the 1976 GMC. Bench seat, four people, three seatbelts. Nobody wore seatbelts. So just like four of us camping. Everything's in the back. And instead of playing my tape of KTEL albums, we played a tape of my grandfather. And the tape was him describing him being a refugee and what he was and what he did. And I didn't really understand what it meant to be a refugee until recently. And a grandson of a refugee and how that plays out today. So it's a camp story, but it's a camp story that grew over time and that I realized what it was today. So we go to Sage Hen Reservoir. It's about two hours north, and we get, in the, we get in the truck. And so my mom says, let's learn about your grandfather. So I put the tape in, starts to play. And it's about a guy, carpenter, living in Russia. He's 18, has two kids. The Russians are moving through the territory in 1913. And what they're doing is ethnically cleansing the Russians, the Germans, whoever else might be in their way, and they have to get out. So my great uncle, and what the story is we're listening to on the way up to the camp is his recollections of how his uncle, his brother, were in the military, and they were cooks. The, the generals were saying, get your family out, get going. They had to go get visas. They bribed their ways through the visas. They got their $20 gold coin to get through America. One of the kids got sick on the transport, and so my aunt faked to be my grandma so they could walk around on deck, pretend there was no problems as the kids were down below. So they found out the kids were sick, they wouldn't make through Ellis Island. They didn't speak English. They had family in eastern Idaho. They got to America, and once they got through customs, they said, where are you going? Sugar shitty, I don't know. Sugar shitty, I don't know. So Sugar Shitty, I don't know, became Sugar City, Idaho, somehow. And he's explaining this on this tape. And there's this thick German accent, ethnically cleansed, getting out before something happened. They make it to Idaho. And the story goes on the tape. And we get to the camp. We set it up. And the camping part becomes we're sitting around a campfire. And as you know, the campfires, you have the coals burning. You're done with dinner. You have that kind of in-between time is a seven, you're seven, eight years old, your sister's nine, ten, and you're trying to come up with things to talk about the family. And you're looking, the coals are glowing, they're red, they're orange. You don't want to go to bed, you want to stay up, and so you ask your mom, why am I here? It's like, well, you are a product of a refugee. You are here because somebody didn't want you someplace else. You're here because an 18-year-old with two kids took a chance, and you made it. I didn't understand it. I, did, I, didn't, I didn't get it. 
But you see, you're poking the coals, and your mom's warning you if you poke too much, you get too much smoke, you're gonna wet the bed. So, you know, you're careful. <laughs> you're really careful the campfire. But, you know, it sticks with you over time. It's like, so, so sugar's shitty, I don't know. A $20 gold coin. And then he's like, well, okay, before you go to bed, what, 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 what did Grandpa do when he first got here? He goes, well, he was a carpenter, but he couldn't get a job. So he learned how to run horses from a stockyard to the fields. Like, well, what did he run between the stockyards and fields? It was a wagon full of shit. And he would basically cover the fields in shit, go back to the stockyards, load up again, and go back out. So here's a manure guy. He spread manure. So, you're, so I said, Grandpa's first job was to spread sh manure? Yeah, that's where he came from. So you forget these stories. You go on. You go through life. You become president of the State 4-H Club. You go on to work for a senator. You go on to work for a congressman. You go on to work for a governor. You go on to take photographs that end up on the state homepage that get used by the Department of Commerce for advertising the state. You become assimilated into America. You are a son, a grandson of an immigrant. You become part of the fabric of America. And so these stories, you know, they're out there and you forget about them. Um, and then you go camping with your family. You're sitting around the campfire. You're photographing the Fourth of July Lake, because you think, yeah, that'd be really good on the state homepage. That'd be really good on the, on the templates you're making for the state agencies. It'd be really good to represent Idaho to the world. And you then turn around, and you get to propose to your wife. And when I see that picture, it represents something. It represents, for me, while camping, that chance to start next generation. It represents to me that these stories you heard when the kid told them was the most important thing you want to hear on the tape, the stories you get to hear of your grandfather talking about, the challenges, starting with nothing, spreading manure, building a life. You're part of a fabric. You get to grow. And so when I go camping and I poke that, poke that fire, and I'm afraid of wetting the bed, <laughs> I think about that I am here because I'm an immigrant. I am part of America, and I am part of something greater. And I take that. That's what I learned when I was camping. So that's my camp story. <laughs> Thank you for listening. Story Story Night is brought to you by our story party. Amy Moran, Karis Kimball, Hannah Mae Schaefer, Karen Moore, Bob Haycock, and me, Jody Eichelberger, with big-time support from the Robert Rauschenberg Foundation. This project is supported by public funding for the arts through the Idaho Commission on the Arts, the Idaho Legislature, and the National Endowment for the Arts. We also receive support from the Boise Arts and History Department. Thank you to our media sponsor, Radio Boise, our season sponsor, Lunchbox Wax, and the camp show sponsor, Idaho Conservation League. Podcast production is by Stephen Baldessare. Our theme song was composed by Dan Costello, who was also our musical guest, and show photography is by Paul Budge. 
Shout out to our marketing guru and co-founder, Jessica Holmes. Support this storied program, get tickets to our live show, and stay tuned at www.storystorynight.org or on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Story Story Night. <laughs> <laughs>